Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is with us. John has been with us uh, quite often because he is uh, one of our sources for good insight into what's going on in the world, and uh, and particularly in the state of North Carolina. And so, John, welcome back to the program. Appreciate it. Is that all you're going to say? That's the shortest. That's the shortest speech he's ever made. Well, I I tried to avoid pentasyllabic terms as much uh, as I can. See, occasionally he uses words with which I am not familiar. <laughs> Penta he meaning may, he, five and syllabic meaning syllables. So I try to avoid five letter, five syllable words as much as possible. Well, I'm good because I don't even understand anything over three syllables. And, <laughs> and, uh, that's that's about my. That, that's it about is my true word. though that when I come when I when I know that I'm coming on your show, Don, it fills me with nicodonia. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Is that is that something you take penicillin for? Or? I probably should, but yeah. it's a word that means anticipation that something good's about to happen, like oh. you're about to win a game or something. Oh, okay. Well, that, I, I think that's good. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll check that out in a few minutes. Um, so anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on. Um, uh, there's so many things going on, and yet in many cases everything's sort of on hold. The General Assembly is in session. Uh, the budget has been presented. It's been uh, sort of referred back, I guess you would say. And so we're at a stalemate. What's going to happen with the, the budget, and how soon will that problem be solved? The state budget bill has always been the most important legislation that any General Assembly enacts. But in recent years, one might even say the last decade or so, a couple of decades, the budget bill is becoming so important because so many other things are inserted in it. If you can't get a bill passed on its own, you make it a provision of the state budget. So the, the budget has become harder in some ways to make deals about because you have so many different moving parts and policy matters embedded in it. Um, but generally speaking, governors and legislatures can work out budget conflicts because they can meet in the middle. You want to spend $500, I want to spend $1,000, we meet in the middle at $750. That's the kind of negotiation, unless your your party or your faction of your party is always in charge of everything, you have to ultimately negotiate out the numbers. The problem they've got with the state budget here in 2019 is that the governor, Governor Roy Cooper, is insisting not just that there be more spending in certain areas or less spending in other areas, that's negotiable. What he's insisting is that North Carolina must expand Medicaid as part of or as a condition for passing the state budget. And the, the problem that kind of negotiating stance puts him in and the legislature in is that expanding Medicaid is not a how much question. It is a yes or no question. The Republicans believe the welfare state's large enough. They simply don't want to expand it. They're a no. Cooper is at a yes. You can't meet in the middle. There isn't any way to halfway expand Medicaid. It's actually not a, not allowed. That option is not allowed under the federal law that the Affordable Care Act. So there's a stumbling block here, and it's taken weeks to see that it's going to take more weeks to fix, if any. And I think the problem that Governor Cooper has fundamentally is that he thinks he's in a strong position. The the Republicans lost the supermajorities they once had in the state legislature. They can't just override his veto with Republican votes. All of that's true, and that does strengthen his hand a bit. But at the same time, this is not like Washington. If there's no budget, that doesn't mean that North Carolina's government shuts down. It just means, under a previously passed law, it just means that the governor government continues. 
schools open, colleges open, departments do their business as normal with last year's funding. And that can last for a whole year, in theory. And frankly, some fiscally conservative Republicans would not be upset at that outcome. So Governor Cooper thinks he's pressuring them by saying, well, I won't sign this budget until you give on Medicaid. And their answer is, well, okay. Um, And so ultimately, the legislature here is in the stronger position. And furthermore, they can send whatever bills they want to to him on majority party line votes, including, and I haven't done this yet, Don, but they have run a stopgap bill that draws down some federal funds and does some things that budget bills usually do, and that will pass, and I assume he'll sign that or has already they, I think they will run a separate bill, Don, that just does pay raises for teachers and state employees, nothing else. They can do that if they want. Is Governor Cooper really going to veto a bill that just raises pay because he didn't get Medicaid expansion? I think he is ultimately in the weaker position. He will have to concede. Now, I recognize that they'll need a fig leaf or some kind of way, graceful way out. They probably ought to give him – they already gave him a committee vote on a Medicaid expansion bill. Maybe they'll give him some more – discussion or something like that or study commission or some kind of fig leaf so that he can back away gracefully but he is going to have to back away otherwise the legislature will run separate budget bills he if he keeps vetoing them it'll hurt him politically and hurt the state if he doesn't veto them there really won't be anything left to negotiate the budget will just never have the, the budget bill will never pass and they'll just have done most of what they want to do separately I, I think that governor cooper read the wrong message out of 2018 and thought he could shape the budget largely to his satisfaction and he just doesn't have that much power let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the key issue that you mentioned and that's medicaid expansion some states have done it some states haven't we're not the only one that but is. most states at this point have done it done that's, it. that's so, true so what are the pros and cons of uh, why we should or should not uh do the Medicaid expansion as the governor wants. Well, let's start with the pros. Remember that the Affordable Care Act created this category of Medicaid expansion, and the funding for the the enrollees under Medicaid expansion is much more generous than for regular Medicaid. Now, you might think this is, and I suspect this will not last in the long run, it's a little odd. If, if the federal government's going to pay 90 cents on the dollar for uh fairly young people who have very few health problems who don't have children. Uh, so they're worth a lot to the state because the government's going to pay 90 cents on the dollar, but a disabled person, a blind person, a pregnant mom about to give birth, they're, they only get 67 cents on the dollar from the federal uh, funding. That's weird, but certainly in the short run, it's financially attractive to many states. That's one of the reasons that they've taken it. Another argument is that there are people who can't qualify for for Medicaid right now. They have incomes that are below the poverty line, but not low enough. And they don't have incomes above the poverty line, so they can't go into the federally funded exchanges and get a Affordable Care Act plan. And so they're in this coverage gap. And expanding Medicaid, at least up to poverty line, though that's not really allowed by the federal government, but expanded up at least up to the poverty line would fill a gap. There would be people who would have access to a health plan who previously, who currently struggle to do that. Um, there's some other arguments that more Medicaid funding would help rural hospitals that are closely at margin, if any, in terms of uh, being viable. There's an argument it would boost the economy because that money would flow through and hire new people in the healthcare industry. The arguments against it are, 
as I said, there's sort of a general philosophical argument. The government, the welfare state's too big. At least the caseload of people who are currently not in Medicaid aren't. They're not sick. They're not infirm. Uh, they're not disabled. Uh, that, well, why should we add another class of people into government dependency? There's also the problem that the, 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 there's a debate about this, but somewhere between a third and a half of the people who would get Medicaid expansion under what Governor Cooper is proposing already have health care coverage. They already are in an pl employer plan or something, and getting Medicaid moves them from essentially some version of self-sufficiency and into private system, which is better, onto Medicaid. It's a very expensive way to reach the people who are truly uninsured is the argument because a lot of people who aren't uninsured would end up in Medicaid. There's also the argument that Medicaid as it's currently structured does not have, a, unlike other welfare programs, it doesn't have a work requirement. So if you are capable of working uh, and you want to get benefits, you don't have to have a job or show that you were looking for a job to get Medicaid. Some of the Republicans who want to expand Medicaid want to put work requirements and at least some modest premiums that people would have to share the cost of Medicaid to some degree. Cooper says he's open to a variety of options, but he really doesn't want that version of Medicaid reform. And the Democrats say that even if that happened, whenever they got in power, they get rid of all the work requirements and the premiums. Well, the Republicans say, well, then why should we do this in the first place? We don't want welfare programs that are just handouts. So... The pros and cons here, as I just described them, there are many. They're interesting. I think the, another con would be there's no way the federal government can afford Medicaid expansion in the long run because it's already in massive debt. The reimbursement rate is bizarre and too rich, and eventually some future Congress and president will change that. States will end up shouldering way more than 10 percent of the cost of these enrollees, and so let's not buy this uh, this sort of rosy scenario, it's not going to happen, and North Carolina taxpayers would suffer in the long run. So there's a lot of pros and cons, as I just described it. It takes a while to describe it because it's complicated. But as a political matter, I just don't think it's a big voting issue. The Democrats are convinced the public is demanding Medicaid expansion. Depending on how you ask the question, you can get a fair amount of people say they're in favor of it. I think a lot of those voters actually think you're asking them about Medicare, for example. It's, you want to be careful reading the polls. But it is not a main voting issue for swing voters. And so Governor Cooper is risking a lot on an issue that I assume he feels strongly about, but I don't really think is politically saleable, politically wise. Okay, so you've, uh, that's a very good explanation of the pros and cons. Uh, so what are we likely to see happen now? I don't think Medicaid expansion is, is in the immediate future for North Carolina. I, I would not like this outcome necessarily, but I do suspect that eventually Congress or somebody will address this problem by allowing states to add people to the Medicaid rolls if they're uninsured and if their incomes are below the poverty line, which would be a much more narrow shot than full Medicaid expansion. And I think North Carolina might take that deal at some point in the future. Uh, but right now, I just unless the legislature goes Democratic in 2020, I just don't see it. So you're saying you think we'll go a year without a budget? We might, but essentially, Don, we won't go a year without a budget because there, there's a budget already there, in there's place. There's a budget in place. They will amend yep. it slightly to do pay raises and so forth. And essentially, you will get maybe 90 or 95 percent of where you want to go without passing, quote, the budget bill. Don, we're used to hearing about budgets related to things like, well, we've got to keep up with enrollment yep. growth. Yep. There isn't any enrollment growth of consequence mm -hmm. in our state's schools and universities and so forth, so it's just not, it's not a pressing need. 
Our guest is John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation. We'll be back with more here on Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? Uh, what? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is John Hood, who's with us frequently. He, he is uh, uh, a frequent guest on Tom Campbell's program, North Carolina Spin. He's also uh, a, a syndicated writer in uh, newspapers across the state and uh, has been a great source for us for getting uh, – information about various and sundry subjects because we've always found John sort of looks at both sides always and uh, uh, he he of course is working for a think tank and so he sits around and thinks all the day or right, that's what I'm told he does I'm not sure yeah, what you do. I, the, there's there's a big difference between appearing to think and actually thinking and I, I I'm more of an expert in the former than the latter. Well, I think uh, most of us are. <laughs> uh, I ask, uh, I've been asking guests recently what their definition – we hear the term fake news all the time now. Everybody's talking about fake news. And so I've been asking people uh, on the show and otherwise, what is your definition of fake news? Because I can't seem to find any two people that seem to have the same definition. So, John, what is your definition of fake news? In my view, fake news is quite literally stuff that was made up that for which there are no sources, for which there's no factual uh, verification. Fake news is not news you disagree with, that you don't want to hear. Fake news is not an opinion, okay? Uh, you could have a story that's too biased. You could have a story that has opinions in it instead of facts, and those will be objectionable. But fake news really needs to – I mean, I know this is going out on a pretty large limb here, Don, but I think fake news should be news that has been faked, so how much? I've, so I mean, but, but people keep putting titles to things that don't meet that definition. This is like the term politically correct. Okay. There's a lot of terms out there, and people want to throw them around. Political correctness was event, was originally a Marxist concept. You'd have communist ac activists, and they would sort of test each other's orthodoxy. And so, if someone strayed a little bit from the orthodoxy, they were politically incorrect, and they need to be politically correct. Now, it was later applied to broader terms. And now, people say, when when I say, don't be obnoxious, don't be rude, don't be such a jackass. It's a perfectly fine word, by the way. It refers to a donkey. Don't do that. And they say, oh, you want me to be politically correct? I said, no. I just want you to be an adult. <laughs> you know? Um, political incorrectness uh, and fake news are terms that are often used 
uh, in ways that are just pejorative. They, they're not really designed to inform anybody about anything. What was that last word? Pejorative. They're just attacks on okay. somebody I, else. I just, I just wanted to get that one in. <laughs> you just sort of slipped that one in on me. Okay. Well, that's only a, a four-syllable word. I know. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm allowed those. Okay. I can be perspicacious uh-huh. in my use of vocabulary because it's only four syllables. Okay. Okay. Sure, Wolf. <laughs> but that's okay. Okay. So, okay. Now, let's move to what has been in the news this week uh, in a big sort of way, and that is the indiscriminate uh, shootings that we've had, um, which are just heart-wrenching uh, and uh, a major concern. And you know, The one thing people want is safety. Uh, they want to be able to go to Walmart. <laughs> they want to be able to go to ball games. They want to be able to go to concerts and so forth and feel safe. And of course, this is played in the hands of those who are uh, very strong advocates for gun control. Uh, there are others who say, "Wait a minute! It's the hate that's doing it. It's not the guns." There's, you know, this has been going on forever. But this is a major, major concern right now, and it probably will be an, an election issue. Uh, either just the safety issue or the gun control issue. So what, where do you see this going, and, and how long will this stay uh, to be a major problem? I don't, th- I don't see this going very well, uh, and I don't, think, I don't see it going in a good, good direction. I'm very frustrated by, by this entire set of political uh, performance art. Uh, these are horrible stories. People immediately jump to conclusions. They immediately try to force-fit something into a political mold. Should the president be more responsible when he's talking about immigration? Absolutely he should. We have a white nationalist, apparently, go on a shooting spree in Texas. We had a proto-socialist left-wing disturbed young man go on a shooting spree in Ohio. In neither case are politicians whose ideas might dovetail with some of the shooters' ideas responsible for the actions of the shooters. This is pretty basic stuff. And so I'm really bothered by the attempt to politicize events like this. They also, by the way, give the shooters what they want, which is to be the top of everybody's you know, tip of everybody's yes. tongue. I mean, you, you be careful about that. The this other is, thing, uh, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you here because I'm going to give an example it, uh, for years, people would go on the field of NFL football games or baseball games, either streaking naked or showing protests. And finally, the network said, we're just not going to show it. And it's cut it out. Of course it did. Yeah. You know, lots of sort of folk, f- f- faux protesting would go away if the reporters didn't show up because it's just, a, it's just mm-hmm. a, it is, it is kind of fake news. It's manufactured news. Well, in this case, uh, another great frustration is the lack of connection between the gun control conversation and these events. Uh, Of course, you're right. Every time there is a mass shooting, people immediately start reasserting their various positions on gun control. Here's the problem with that, is that the mass shootings, as far as I know, could not have been prevented by most of what anybody is proposing. Make the background checks more universal, including private sales among individuals. Well, as far as I know, little to few or none of the guns used in these mass shootings were acquired that way. Most of them were acquired perfectly legally, and people passed background checks, or their family members did. Are you going to say that a woman gets a background check and buys a gun and the husband's not going to have access to it, or the son? Of course they are. 
That's just that's just unrealistic. Similarly, um, most of the discussions about gun control that actually are relevant to significant use of guns really are about handguns, and they ought to be about handguns. Now, I'm not a gun control person, but at least if you talk about handguns, you're talking about something that's relevant to the vast majority of murders committed with a gun. These are mass shootings are done with long rifles, rifles that are owned by millions of people. There are millions of these rifles in private hands today. Now, in theory, I suppose you could reduce or eliminate the risk of mass shootings by people who with shooting rifles by confiscating millions of rifles. The cost and the level of police intrusion that would require is vastly more than anybody would, any rational person would put up with. It would never happen. They will never confiscate all these guns and all the, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of rounds of ammunition that exist for these guns. So that is a waste of time, in my view, a waste of time to talk about. What would be a much more productive discussion would be how do we keep guns out of the hands of people who have mental illnesses? How do we keep guns out of the hands of people who have you know, dangerously extremist views or essentially exhorting themselves and others to violence? It's worth talking about the red flag type law, something that would allow at least a temporary uh, deprivation of a gun from someone when there was a family member saying, I think this person is dangerous. My son, my nephew, my neighbor has threatened to kill people. You know, for as long as there's due process and there, there's an appropriate system to protect rights, I think that is a reasonable conversation because you can imagine a policy like that might affect mass shootings. Now my final point about all this is mass shootings are horrible and tragic. There was one, as you may recall, just, just some time ago at UNC Charlotte. It happened very near where my son goes to school and where his dorm is. Um, he and his friends were struck by it, shaken by it. I completely understand that. But gun violence as a overall social problem in America is declining. It's not going up. It's lower than it was a generation ago. We are not less safe from guns today than we were a generation ago. We are more safe from gun violence today. Now, that's just a reality of the situation. It doesn't mean we ought not to take steps to address the problem. It doesn't mean these stories aren't horrific and tragic. But as a matter of evaluating the risk to public safety and taking appropriate cost-beneficial steps. There's just not very many rational conversations happening right now, and I'm very frustrated by it. Well, it's, it's always interesting every time this comes up, and I watch Gunsmoke on television, the reruns, and Marshall Dillon, and, of course, everybody in the, the Long Branch has a gun on yes. them. And, uh, from Which time tends to improve your manners. Yes. <laughs> so everybody's <laughs> carrying a gun. And uh, so, uh, so one of my friends said, you know, maybe the solution is for us all to be carrying guns, and then that might, that might be a safer solution than what well, we in Well, in the Ohio case, there, there was an immediate response, and I believe that shooter was gunned down within a minute or something. He still was able to kill a number of people. Oh. So I'm, I'm all in favor of concealed carry laws and people arming themselves that they need to for self-defense. I am a Second Amendment defender. But I think we should be careful not to oversell even the benefits of defensive gun use, which, by the way, is very common. Most defensive gun use does not involve a discharge of a firearm. It involves brandishing. Your I am armed, leave me alone, is a defensive gun use that happens a lot. But anyway, uh, the problem is there are cases. There are people who are disturbed or have extremist ideologies if they have access to a gun in a free society, there is a great risk 
that there is a risk that they will be able to commit a, a, an act. And I would like to have narrowly tailored responses to that problem, not we're going to do universal background checks, which is, doesn't seem to be relevant to the story, or we're going to go after all guns, all, all you know, the most popular rifle in the country and confiscate it, which is preposterous. Well, it's, it's certainly a, a – it, and it has always been a problem. Uh, I mean, this is not a new problem. This has been going on forever. And uh, uh, public safety is, of course, one of the things that government is clearly responsible for. That's its first for. and foremost responsibility. Exactly. So where, where do we stand on redistricting, and how will that affect the next election? Well, we still have litigation. I, I, you know, I try to keep up with it, but I'm confused. It, you ought to be confused. Well, I am. Um, we've had a series of maps thrown out, congressional and legislative, on <coughs> excuse me, federal Voting Rights Act grounds, um, essentially racial gerrymandering grounds. Now, there's an argument that they shouldn't have been and back and forth, but let's set that for, aside for a second. The current challenges are not about race. They're about party, about partisan gerrymandering. There was an attempt to strike down North Carolina's congressional map, current congressional map, in federal court because it violated the standards that should be applied. The U.S. Supreme Court said no by a five-to-four decision. They said this is not a matter that is justiciable by federal courts. And that's not the same thing as saying state courts couldn't intervene. In fact, they specifically cited state courts or state constitutional amendments or state reforms as alternative solutions other than having the federal courts intervene. Um, So what's happening now is a lawsuit that's currently in the trial court stage challenging North Carolina's legislative maps as a violation of the state constitution because the argument is they are gerrymandered to favor the Republicans. Um, I'm not sure that's going to work either in the short run, but it might. that argument might prevail in a North Carolina Supreme Court ultimately that is a six-to-one Democratic court. I personally believe, I've advocated for decades that we should reform North Carolina's redistricting process to put some guardrails on it, make it much harder to manipulate the maps in favor of one party or the other. I have hopes that that reform will pass in the next few months, that it will be enacted, that it will pass the House. I hope it will pass the Senate. What I'm proposing, what I support is a constitutional amendment. So it would go in front of the voters, and the voters would decide it in March. And if they said yes, uh, it wouldn't. this particular provision wouldn't be a, a, a legislative com- or a nonpartisan commission drawing the maps, which could be challenging to get past or challenging to, to work right, what it would do is put in the Constitution criteria that would constrain maps drawn by the legislative staff, the nonpartisan legislative staff, uh, make it very hard to gerrymander one direction or the other. I think that's the right decision. I think Republicans may view that ultimately as in their self-interest. They don't know who's going to win in 2020. Maybe there is a Republican wipeout. The Democrats take the legislature. Do they really want the other side to draw the maps? Um, do they want the state Supreme Court to intervene and draw maps? I, I think there's an argument that both sides ought to take out an insurance policy, a political insurance policy, against a catastrophic loss, which is that the other side will gerrymander them. All insurance policies cost money, Don. You know this. You've yeah. probably paid them before. <laughs> so you do pay a little bit in order to get a comp- protection against yeah. catastrophic loss. In this case, the Republicans would have to give up a free hand in drawing maps or a freer hand that – they wouldn't have the free hand they currently have. 
I think that's a price worth paying to avoid having the other side, if you're a Republican, take over and gerrymander you, or vice versa. And one of the things that's always interesting to me is that uh, the uh, Democrats have all uh, always said, uh, yeah, and by the way, uh, we are uh, critical of what the Republicans are doing, but by the way, I think we did the same thing. Uh, well, so, they clearly did the same uh, thing. Yeah. The worst jury, the worst gerrymanders I ever saw were not by the Republicans. They were after the 2000 census when the Democrats came up with maps that would have given them control of the legislature, even if Republicans had gotten vastly more, significantly more votes than the Democrats consistently. That was struck down by state court because yep. uh, it violated state constitution, but it violated a specific provision. I think that's different from the litigation we see right now. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he'll have another interesting guest for us next week, or so he says. He promises me that every week. Uh, And uh, so I look forward to seeing who we'll have next week, and I hope that you uh, out there in Radio Land will join us. Uh, If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear that. Uh, As I said, our program has been produced by Jason, and he's done a good job. And we will look forward to seeing you again next week. So till next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.